Well, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be in your, your beautiful city. This is my first visit to Arizona. Having spent this uh, winter in southern Ohio, um, I can tell you the contrast is significant. So um, it, is, it was lovely to step off the plane and see the color blue above me in this. You've got this thing here. I don't know what it's called. It's some burning ball of gas up in the sky that... It's also a pleasure to see. And mountains. <laughs> Southern Ohio is kind of flat. If you stand on a, on a desk chair, you can pretty much see into Illinois. So it's nice to have some, some landscape to look at. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Although I'm told not to come here at any, any time in the summer. It's beautiful now. It's nice and warm now. But um, we used to have this game when I was a kid where you would pretend the ground was too hot to step on. So you had to go everywhere by climbing from one piece of furniture to the next. You guys don't only do that in the summer, but you do this thing where the air is also too hot to touch. <laughs> Planes can't fly because it's crazy. Anyway, so I'm liking your state now, but I'm, I'm glad it's this month and not August or something. Uh, we have the opposite extreme in the UK. I was saying to some friends yesterday that uh, this year's summer was on a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> so somewhere between Arizona and the United Kingdom is is climate perfection, I'm sure. But it's a pleasure to be with you guys. Um, two things became very, very apparent to me around the time of my 18th birthday. Uh, the first was that, that Jesus Christ was someone I wanted to follow. I had just recently been invited to uh, a church. My friends, had a couple of friends who were committed Christians. I respected them and admired them and was very fond of them. And they invited me to come to their church's youth ministry. And I, I couldn't really think of a reason not to. Um, I, I thought, I'm, I like you guys. I'll, I'm interested to find out what makes you tick. I, I'm open on the God question. So yeah, I'll, I'll come along and, and see what you guys are into. Uh, part of me was also secretly hoping this was the early 90s. And so I don't know what it's like in, in this neck of the woods now. But in the early 90s, Christian youth workers were really entertaining because they were typically in their late 30s, desperately trying to look and sound like they were 14 years old <laughs> and failing miserably. So I thought at the very least I'd get some entertainment out of that. I was expecting someone to come up, to pull up a chair, to turn it the other side round and then sit down on it and be like, guys. And so I was really disappointed instead when a very old man stood up and gave a talk about Christianity. However, once he opened his mouth, I was spellbound. Uh, because I heard a message from his lips I had never heard in my life. I'd grown up in, in England. I had assumed Christianity was about being good enough and kind of obnoxious enough, and then God would like you. And yet this man said that the Christian faith is not about God rewarding good people. It's about God forgiving bad people. I'd never heard that. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, not the found. He was a doctor who came for the sick and not the healthy. And something within me stirred and helped me to recognize I was, I was one of the people he came for. I was one of the people who needed him. And so around the time of my 18th birthday, I, I remember giving my life to Christ and thinking, this is a man who's died for me and risen again. I want to follow him. Didn't know what that would mean or what it would look like or where it would lead. I just knew I wanted to give my life to him. 
The other thing that happened around the same time, the other thing I began to realize slightly earlier than this, was that my romantic and sexual feelings were towards men and not towards women. This had been a very gradual realization during my teenage years. I'm pretty slow at the best of times, so this, this took me a while to figure out. But it became unavoidable and real. Uh, during my teenage years, I slowly began to be aware that, firstly, I wasn't having the feelings for, for girls that many of my friends were. And I, instead, I was starting to have some of those very feelings for some of my friends. It wasn't something I, I sought after. It wasn't something I decided. I didn't wake up one day and think, hey, I'm going to try being attracted to guys and see, see how life works out that way. And one day on my way back home from high school, I remember standing waiting for a bus to collect me, and I remember thinking, I'm gay. I think I'm gay. And the moment those words entered my mind, I knew it was true. I thought, well, of course I am. I don't have sexual and romantic feelings to girls. I do have them towards other guys. And at that point, I was thinking, maybe I could go to university. When I go there, I can, I can explore this as a way of living. And that was my plan until I was invited to my friend's youth group and came to meet Jesus Christ. And so as a brand new Christian, one of the big questions that was weighing heavily on my mind was this, what does Jesus think about these issues? I knew I wanted to follow Jesus. I also knew that I, I had these sexual feelings. How did those two things relate? What does Jesus think about sexuality and about sexual ethics? And so that was a question that occupied me certainly very early on in my Christian life. That was something I really wanted to be clear on and to know what Jesus taught on. And two verses in particular, two passages, have become very foundational to me. Uh, the first is in um, Matthew 15. If you've got your Bible switched on, you can swipe your way to, to Matthew, 9, uh, Matthew 15. It's taken 2,000 years, and we're back to scrolling through Scripture. You've got to love that. Uh, Matthew 15. Jesus is talking to a group of people called the Pharisees and the scribes. They were extremely devout and earnest. And one of the things they believed was that, that sin was a bit like a spiritual infection. And so if you wanted to remain uncontaminated, you needed to avoid the people and places and things that looked like they were contaminated. That was how you could kind of remain spiritually healthy. And so, so much of their spirituality was about avoiding certain things and trying to remain clean. And Jesus says something to them in these verses that is devastating to that way of thinking. Because he says, what comes out of the heart, this is Matthew 15, verse 19, what, uh, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So Jesus is saying, you guys are partially right. There is such a thing as sin. It is a spiritual contaminant, but what you are mistaken on is where that is found. Because it is not out there to be avoided. Jesus says it's in here to be confessed. If you are a human person with a heart, you are a spiritual contagion. 
And Jesus points to some of the symptoms of that condition. This is just a sample of them. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Those are the symptoms of this spiritual condition. And one of those symptoms Jesus describes as sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word that Matthew would have written in his gospel is porneia. I don't normally know Greek words, but that one's familiar sounding, isn't it? Because it's where we get the word pornography from. And at the time of Jesus, that word literally just meant any sexual behavior outside of marriage. Uh, that would include premarital sex. It would include adultery that Jesus also mentioned separately here would have included prostitution, and it would have included, at the time of Jesus, any same-sex sexual behavior as well. The only context for sexual behavior, according to Jesus, is marriage. Now, we need to recognize that because one of the prevailing myths today is that Jesus was, was just kind of sexually tolerant. Uh, many people today have this idea that the Old Testament was full of stringent things about sexual behavior. Depending on your reading, the Apostle Paul either didn't know enough about sexual things in the way that we do today, or maybe he just got out of the wrong side of bed when he was writing some of his letters. But Jesus is kind of just chilled out about the whole thing. He's kind of neutral. But the fact is, Jesus takes the Old Testament sexual ethic... And he doesn't loosen it, he intensifies it. He takes it just from the area of outward behavior to inward disposition and heart and attitude. He says that if you look at someone lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. He internalizes it. He's not a pushover on these things. Well, the second passage was the one that we just had read to us in Matthew 19. It's a really foundational passage for how we think about a Christian approach to sexual ethics, or, or better put, a Jesus approach to sexual ethics. Uh, again, the Pharisees are on the scene. We have them to, to thank for so much of the, the great teaching we get from Jesus, uh, because they come up to Jesus, and they're not wanting to learn from him. Uh, we're told in verse 3 they're wanting to test him. They're wanting to trap him. And so they have calibrated a question that will make it very easy for them to clobber Jesus, whatever he says. They ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, some Jewish rabbis were teaching that. If your wife once said, burnt your food, that would be reason enough if you felt appropriate, you could divorce her for that. That was a real thing. And so the, the Pharisees say to Jesus, where are you on this? And it's a great question because whatever Jesus says, they can get him in trouble. If Jesus says, yeah, it's fine, just, just divorce your wife on any whim. If, they, if Jesus says that, they can come at him and say, Jesus, you are, you are really soft on sin. But if Jesus says, no, of course you can't divorce your wife for any reason... They can say, Jesus, you're quite out of touch with a lot of people today. Um, in the first couple of verses of Matthew 19, Matthew wants us to know exactly where we are when this, this question is raised. We are in the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. That puts us 
in the kingdom, in the, in the domain, the jurisdiction of King Herod. King Herod had had John the Baptist arrested and later beheaded for teaching a conservative sexual ethic. And so this is a great place to spring this question on Jesus because if Jesus says, no, you can't just divorce someone for any reason, the Pharisees can phone up Herod and say, have you got another platter in your kitchen cupboard? Because there's another guy here who doesn't agree with what you've just done. Well, Jesus answers um, with some remarkable teaching. Verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now it's interesting, he's asked a question about divorce, but he doesn't answer by talking about divorce. He answers by talking about marriage. So lesson one, you are not going to understand divorce unless you understand marriage. But more than that, Jesus doesn't just begin in verse, verse 5 by talking about the nature of the union of marriage. He begins in verse 4 by talking about the nature of humanity. So here's the thing. Lesson two, you're not going to understand marriage unless you understand the fact that God has made us male and female. That's interesting. Jesus takes us back to creation and says God has made us sexually different as men and women. And then says in that context, this is the reason a man leaves his father and his mother and becomes united to his wife. The fact that we are made as, as men and women is why we have this phenomenon of marriage. Now, I know that is, is a counter-cultural thing to say in our day and age. So let me just say that Jesus' teaching on marriage, if we properly understand it, is counter-cultural in every age. It's not easy. It's good, but it's not easy. And by the way, that is Jesus in a nutshell, isn't it? He's good. He's not easy. Uh, notice too, Jesus is not defining marriage by the strength or quality of the feelings. But by the type of union that is the result. Uh, the issue is not whether two people of the same sex can be committed to each other. I know plenty of same-sex couples who are. I know plenty of heterosexual couples, frankly, who are not. No, the issue for Jesus is the type of union that results. And there is something unique, Jesus says, about the, the one-man, one-woman union. It alone is a one-flesh union. And to see the significance of that, actually, we, we need to look at the storyline of the Bible. So Genesis 1, you, I'm sure many of us will be familiar, you have the, the account of the creation, it is large scale, this is widescreen, this is epic, um, this is symphonic, you've got ecosystems and planets and species and everything is grand scale, there's lots of special effects and CGI, the whole thing is, is massive, 
And then all of a sudden, in Genesis 2, we, we find ourselves in a garden. I don't know if you've ever noticed the kind of strangeness of that. We go from this, this massive panoramic view to suddenly being in a garden, and there's a guy and a girl who get together. That's odd, isn't it? And yet the reason is, that guy and girl getting together, that is a clue to what the whole Bible is going to be about. Because the union of the man and the woman in marriage becomes a picture of the eventual union of heaven and earth in Jesus. And so as the Old Testament unfolds, we see that God is not just the, the big authority power in the sky. God is, he calls himself a husband. He's come to, to win a people for himself. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we see that God's people are referred to increasingly as a bride. Sadly, often as a wayward and unfaithful bride. Then in the Gospels, Jesus arrives. One of the things he does is he, he says, the bridegroom has come. He's saying, I am that divine husband in the Old Testament. I have come to win you to myself. Paul can then say in 1 Corinthians 6 that he who unites himself to the Lord is one with him in spirit, just as the man who unites himself to his wife is one with her in flesh. Famously in Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about marriage and, and husbands and wives, he then steps back and says, guys, I'm really talking about Jesus and the church. That's what this whole thing is about. And then as the Bible comes to an end, we, we see this, the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride, the church. We see the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And so it turns out that the marriage of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 is a trailer for the real marriage that is to come. And therefore, throughout the whole Bible, this union of one man and one woman within covenant love points beyond itself to the ultimate union, the perfect marriage between Jesus and his people. Well, as Jesus unpacks something of the significance of this one flesh union, the disciples respond in verse 10 by saying, Jesus, if this is a case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Sounds a bit like commitment. Now, this is interesting. I, I uh, get to take weddings occasionally back home. I get to speak at weddings. I get to teach on marriage. It strikes me from Matthew 19 that never once when I have taught on marriage have a group of people come up to me and said, you know what, I think it might be better not to marry. Which makes me think, am I teaching marriage in the way that Jesus is? So the disciples say, if this is the case between a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus doesn't say to them, yeah, you're right, try living together for a bit first. No, the moment they question getting married, Jesus starts talking about eunuchs. Uh, eunuchs were people in the first century who were celibate. Sometimes because of the way they were born, sometimes because of stuff that was done to them, which we don't need to go into in detail because it makes our eyes water. 
or sometimes because of their vocation. But the interesting point is, as far as Jesus is concerned, the only godly alternative to the marriage between a man and a woman is to be celibate. Not just to be single and free and unattached and playing the field, but to be sexually abstinent. So I realized as a, as a new believer that it wasn't going to be appropriate, if I was to continue following Jesus, it wasn't going to be appropriate for me to act on these sexual feelings that I was now recognizing I had. I couldn't do that and follow Jesus with integrity. And so I was left with a choice. Follow Jesus or seek to fulfill my sexuality. I don't think it's probably a surprise at this stage to know that I went the Jesus route, just in case you're wondering about that. <laughs> but in today's culture, that is such an absurd decision to take. If you could be fulfilling your sexuality, why would you choose to follow a religious book or a religious leader who lived 2,000 years ago? It's absurd. It's, it's even, dare we say, is that healthy? So let me give you a couple of reasons why I made that decision and still do. Uh, the first reason sounds like a cop-out, but it isn't. It's the key. It's because of who Jesus is. When I have discussions with, with friends of mine who are not Christian believers, and they, they kind of are slightly freaked out or weirded out by my decision to, to not ful fulfill my sexuality, I have to say to them, listen, this is not going to make sense to you unless you understand who Jesus is to me. When I became a Christian, it was because I recognized that not only was I the person Jesus said I was, but he was the person he said he was. When I became a Christian, it was because I'd realized Jesus had come to this earth to die for me. Not just to die for sin in some abstract, undefined, vague kind of way, but I'd come to the realization that even if I was the only person on the planet, Jesus would have come and died for me alone. I recognized that he'd risen again from the grave. He had defeated death. His sacrifice had, had been signed off by God. That he was alive today, that he was seated at the right hand, that he has the name above every name. And this Jesus who lives and reigns today, here's the great thing, he knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. And it's crazy, but he is more committed to your ultimate joy than even you are. And my friends, if that is true, it's a no-brainer. Let's follow him. He's going to do such a better job of running my life than I am. I can trust him. This is someone I can build a life on. This is someone whose judgment I can trust, even if it's not always easy.
Um, I was in a friend's office um, a while ago, and she had one of these kind of little sayings framed on, on her office wall, and it really struck me. It said, those who hear not the music think the dancers mad. It's true. Uh, you put a music video on YouTube and mute your, your device, and it just it looks a bit weird. There's a lot of people pouting and strutting and all this kind of stuff. You put the volume back on, and in some cases it starts to make a bit of sense. Not always, but in some cases. Well, the person of Jesus, who he is to us, what he's done for us, what he means to us, that is the music that drives us as his people. We do all kinds of things that are counterintuitive to the world around us, that that are bizarre to the world around us because of who Jesus is. It should be the case for, for those of us who are Christian believers that our lives cannot make complete sense to the people around us unless they see who Jesus is. But here's the second reason I made that decision and still do. I was beginning to recognize that if we understand what Jesus teaches about sex and marriage, it is truly challenging and humbling for every single one of us. Because what Jesus teaches about our heart condition is that it taints every single area of life. It means in no area of life can I say, oh, I, I don't need Jesus for that. I'm, I'm okay in that area. No, in no area of life is any of us everything we should be. Sin taints every area of life. Uh, one of my favorite desserts back in the UK, we call it apple crumble. I think you call it apple crumb because for some reason that extra syllable is just a bit too much hard work or something. <laughs> I don't know if you have this kind of thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a really great dessert. Anyway, some friends of mine had me around for lunch one day, and they said, Sam, we've made apple crumble for dessert. And I was like, yes. And then they said, and we've done something a bit different with it. And I was thinking, why would you do that? <laughs> absolutely fine as it is. It needs no improvement. He said, we thought we'd just do something a bit different. We've, we've added some kind of citrus juice to it, some orange, a bit of lemon. It was disgusting. <laughs> It's a public service announcement. Don't do that. <laughs> but here's the thing. It didn't matter which bit of it I was taking a mouthful of. The whole thing was disgusting. <laughs> they had spoiled the whole thing. And sin does that to our lives. It, it taints every area, which means this. It means that in the area of sexuality, you and me are broken. Every single one of us. We are not everything we should be in this area of life. Our desires are disordered. They don't line up the way God has designed them to. If I can put it this way, there is no one who is straight. Let's ditch that word, shall we? Because an implication of what Jesus teaches us is that all of us in our sexuality, we're all skewed in one direction or another. You may be attracted to men or women or both or neither, but the fact remains the same. 
All of us are fallen and broken in this area of life. And therefore, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, it's going to be a cost for us, even in this area of life, because there's going to be certain sexual feelings all of us are going to have to say no to. No one gets everything their way sexually. Jesus didn't come along and and say to, to heterosexual people, you guys, great work, you're doing fine, as you were, off you go, enjoy. And then say to everybody else, I'm sorry guys, but mm, this isn't going to work quite so well. No, we understand what Jesus teaches about sex and marriage, and all of us need to repent. All of us need to confess. All of us need to recognize that there is something not right in our hearts. And for all of us, it's going to be costly to follow Jesus in this area of life. And so I began to realize that actually... The cost of discipleship for me is just one type of what is the case for everyone. And that should not surprise us because Jesus uh, famously said in in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone, the key word there is anyone, if anyone would come after me. No one doesn't have to do this. This is Discipleship 101. Jesus is lousy at marketing because he doesn't bury this in the small print. He puts it front and center. If you want to come after me, you are going to have to deny yourself. You are going to have to say a profound no to some of the deepest instincts and intuitions and longings in your heart. But here's the extraordinary thing. Jesus says, as we do that, we don't become less ourselves, we become more ourselves. Most of us in our better moments have a sense we're not the person we ought to be. We're not the the version of us we sense we could be, that we want to be. We're just not very, we don't do a very good job of being people. And the extraordinary thing is, as we deny self, we become the person God always had in mind for us to be. Which shouldn't surprise us, God made you, right? You were his idea. He thought you up. And so he knows far more than you do about how to be you. And the beautiful thing is, and I don't know how God pulls this off, I just know that he does. If every single one of us in this room followed Jesus for the next 10 years, two things would happen. We would become more like Jesus, and we wouldn't become more like each other. That's beautiful, isn't it? We become our real selves. So Jesus says in the next verse, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So particularly those of us who are younger in this room, you may not have experienced this yet, but you will. At some point, following Jesus is going to feel like it's killing you. There are going to come moments in your life when it feels like Jesus is taking life from you. 
And yet those of us who've lived as Christians for a number of years can tell you, during those very moments, Jesus Christ is actually giving us life. It's one of the paradoxes of the Christian faith. We lose everything and realize we didn't really lose anything at all. Jesus only gives to us. And that is the case for all of us, for anyone who would come after Jesus. Now that tells me following Jesus is going to be costly for anyone, and it's really going to be worth it. It's really going to be worth it. So let me put it this way. If you think the cost of discipleship for our LGBT friends is too high, you think it's too high for anyone. Because it's the same cost of discipleship for us all. Jesus wants your whole life. Uh, somebody came up to me once after I was teaching on, on this whole issue and said, yeah, but the gospel's harder for you, isn't it? Because it goes against who you really are. And I remember saying to them, well, I'm not sure my sexual feelings are who I really am. Thank you very much. But secondly, if you think that the gospel of Jesus has slotted in neatly to your life, I don't think it's the gospel of this Jesus you've received. Jesus isn't easy. He is always, always good. I want to share one more verse with you, which isn't about this issue, but kind of is. Uh, John chapter 6 is a very well-known saying of Jesus. John 6 verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we hear that, and we think, oh, that's, that's, that's lovely. I, I like bread. That's, that's good, I guess. Well, well done or something. I don't know. Is this... It's because we don't understand what Jesus means by that. I went out to have lunch with a friend recently. We went out to a restaurant. The waiter came over and said, would you like any bread for the table? And we thought for a moment, said, mm, no, we're right, actually. We'll, we'll just wait for the, the main food to arrive. And so when we hear Jesus say, I'm the bread of life, we think he's saying, would sir like a bit of religion for the table? And we can take it or leave it. But in the time of Jesus, if you didn't have bread, you did not eat. No bread meant no life. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I am to your soul what bread is to a starving stomach. When Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's saying, I am the only one who can satisfy you at the very deepest level. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, and get this, no one else is. 
and nothing else is. And we need to keep hearing John 6 verse 35 because we are constantly looking for the bread of life in the wrong place. And one of the most significant places we are being trained to look for the bread of life today is romantic and sexual fulfillment. That is what we're being told. If you can fulfill your sexuality, if you can find the perfect romantic partner, that will be what makes life complete. So, so let me say to you, and I say this with, with love, if you marry someone thinking that person is going to fulfill you, you're going to be a bit of a nightmare to be married to. <laughs> because you're putting on that person something they are not designed to bear. Marriage in the Bible is designed to point beyond itself. Our earthly marriage is, is but the trailer for the real, for the ultimate marriage between Jesus and his people. So to those of you in this room who are married, let me, let me say this to you. Your marriage is not meant to fulfill you. It is meant to point to the thing that will. Now, I wouldn't suggest putting that in your anniversary card. That's not the kind of, <laughs> hey, baby, another year of you not fulfilling me. But do you know what? You will love your spouse better when you realize that they're not meant to fulfill you. If you love God first and your spouse second, you will end up loving your spouse more than if you'd loved your spouse first. By the way, that's true of anything in this life. I was uh, listening to a, a, a guy recently who was uh, bragging on his bride, lovely Christian lady. He was uh, commending her to, to a, his friends, and he, he ended up saying, do you know what, she's the light of my world. And I remember thinking, no, she's not. <laughs> and you're not loving her by saying things of her that you should only say of Jesus. So let me um, lower the cultural tone significantly by, by quoting from the great philosopher Derek Zoolander. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have seen the, the original Zoolander movie. The, the premise is that the, the more good-looking you are, the more stupid you are. I personally find that very, very offensive. Um, uh, in the character, Derek, in the movie, Derek Zoolander is very, very good-looking, and therefore he is very, very stupid. And there's a scene in the movie where, where his friends decide they're going to they're build a school in his honour. And so they've got the architect's model prepared and they invite him to come and have a look at it. They're excited. He walks in, he sees the architect's model and he's livid. And he says, what is this? Is this a school for ants? It needs to be at least three times bigger than this. Some of you are doing a Derek Zoolander voice in your head right now, and I can hear it. 
The stupidity of the scene is he's mistaken the model for the thing it's pointing to. And my friends, we do that with our romantic relationships. They're there to point us to Jesus. The ultimate marriage is to Jesus. So marriage is meant to reflect the shape of the gospel and singleness can reflect the sufficiency of the gospel because it's a way of saying that reality is so real and so good I can live according to it now. That if I have Jesus, I have the reality, I have the ultimate. And the penultimate may be a wonderful blessing, but it is not an ultimate blessing. Whether we are single or married, we get the goodness of God because we get God himself. The Christian sexual ethic is beautiful because God is beautiful. So let me pray for us. Our loving Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Those words are so easy to say and yet express so inadequately all that you've done for us in Christ and all that he is to us, all that we are now because of him. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. And whether we're thinking about the issue of sexuality or anything else, please help us to taste and see that the Lord our God is good. Not always easy, but always, always good. And we pray in the good name of Jesus. Amen.